Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, the word of the Lord. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne. And before the four lived themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits from God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was found, in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The word of the Lord. So, in order to understand chapter 14... Uh, we really need to revisit chapter 13 because there's a scene change. And in chapter 13 is um, the earth from, is the church from an earthly perspective. So it's the things that we see as we walk around here. But chapter 14 is the church from a heavenly perspective and the church in victory. So it's similar to how the book of Ecclesiastes approaches things. If you're familiar with the way it does it, but in uh, Ecclesiastes, um, the writer writes from two perspectives. And what he does is he says, from an earthly perspective, I see this. But from a heavenly perspective, I see this. And the keys to that, as you're reading through Ecclesiastes, is he'll say from earthly perspective, and he says, under the sun. So um, Ecclesiastes 2 22 and 23, it says, What has a man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. By the way, you know, if you don't like your job and you like to post Bible verses around, you know, here, here's one for you. It's just like we sang the hymn. It's like, you know, the guy that wrote that. He's got to have been old. You can't. He's like bending low. We're trying. You know, you're hurting. You know, step off the road for a minute and observe the angels. You know, is what he's he's saying here. And Ecclesiastes. You know, I look at life under the sun from a world's perspective. All our days are full of sorrow. His works is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And then you go to the next chapter. And you read Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That's the same guy. <laughs> so if you're going to go to your job and plant this is a toil and vexation. You got to put it thing as beautiful in its time too, or you don't have it in a Christian perspective. So a good Christian perspective is life is difficult, full trial, toil, vexation. And if you aren't careful, as Ryan said, we're going to need a sermon on complaining because that's what we'll end up doing. And you know, if you can focus long enough, we used to talk about um, that your attitude. And the attitude of a plane has to do with whether it's pointing down or if it's pointing up. And if your attitude is negative, you might go faster. You might even see things look prettier on the ground. But if it don't change, you're crashing. So you have a 
good upward attitude. Our analogy fails because eventually you're going to run out of air, but you never run out of air with heaven. So you got to have an attitude that is a positive way of looking at things that doesn't look at everything, as we used to say, through rose-colored glasses. You can acknowledge hardship and trial under the sun. But under heaven, there's a time and a purpose for everything. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And that's the perspective. And even as we see the New Testament in Christ, we can even see more of these things. And this is what the writer in Revelation is doing. He's saying, when you look at a lot of these messages, a lot of these sections of Revelation, it's like, okay, this stuff sounds pretty bad. It's so much so that depending on the way you, some people interpret Revelation, uh, it's people get afraid of it. I don't want to deal with Revelation. I don't want to read Revelation. It scares me and stuff. It's like, well, then, you know, you must not be reading the Bible, right? Because it, it should only be scary to people who are outside of Christ. But what is scary is a little thing that we call realism. Realism can be Things are tough. Things are difficult. There are monsters out there. There are things that we need to fight and battle and protect our children from. These things are real, and they have to be prepared for these things. But to think that everything's a monster, to think that every bed has something underneath it, every closet there's lurking something, so that you fearfully hide in the bed and pull the covers over your face, um, that's no way to live life. Neither is the opposite, where you think there's no problem. I never have to wear a seatbelt. I can drive with my eyes closed. You know, there's common sense things. And in Christian life, we see these things. The book of Revelation begins with the letters to seven churches who are at different levels of their sanctification and how they're doing, but they're all experiencing some level of persecution. And so Revelation is written to Christians who throughout time from the time of the resurrection of Christ to the last day of Christ, the last day, uh, we will experience hardship and persecution. How do we deal with it? And then we get this perspective from the heavenly perspective as we see um, these two different viewpoints. So looking back at Revelation 13 again, you know, we see the seven-headed beast from the sea and then a lamb with two horns um, the, coming up out of the earth. But when it speaks, it has um, sounds like a dragon. So it's told later this is a false prophet. So we have this beast and we have this false prophet. And I'm just going to quickly read this in chapter 13 of Revelation. <clears throat> I saw this beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns. Blasphemous names were on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's mouth like a, like a lion's. And, and to it the dragon gave its power and his throne and his great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast okay so the whole earth this is the non-believers in the world following the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who's like the beast and who can fight against it and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months <clears throat> it opened its mouth with to utter blasphemies against god blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is those who dwell in heaven Okay, so you've got those dwelling on the earth, then there's those in heaven, and that can be um, our citizenship is in heaven. So even the church here on earth and what Satan is doing, the beast and the, the 
the false prophet are all doing are saying blasphemous things. That means un, very ungodly things about Christians and about the church. Verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth, again the non-believers, will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then we go to verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So it makes the earth worship the, the first beast who we saw are um, demonized state governments whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs, it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. All throughout church history, all non-believers have received this mark. All non-believers today have this mark, the mark of the beast, on their hand, on their head. Their thoughts controlled by um, Satan and not realizing it and therefore their actions are as well and then what you will have is particularly during the time of the seven churches one of the things they were dealing with was if you did not bow down and worship the the gods of your particular trade guild if you didn't worship Caesar in a particular way you were pretty much out you might not be able to buy sell or trade without this mark so what we see is the mark and it's going to become very clear as we've read in our next chapter that um, it marks people off as not unto the Lord. It's ownership and control by Satan, by the dragon, by the false prophet, by the beast. So that what you have is a characteristic of demonized state government, false prophets, Satan working in the, in the world through false religions and false churches to control people, to gather people as much as he's able under his wings to cause them to bow down and worship him and his only desire is for their destruction but he's a liar and they can't see it so to be looking for the mark is the wrong thing to do but do be aware of the characteristics of the beast because satan does do certain things to control and to destroy. But in chapter 14, then I looked, and this is another little phrase, he'll say, then I looked, or, and behold, and you know, okay, you got another shift of scene, we have something else going on, and we'll see when we get to the seventh one of these in this section, there's actually, this is another cycle of sevens that you might not see because they don't count them, but there is in a cycle of sevens here. I looked, <clears throat> and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So where are the people wondering about that mark? Where do we get it? Maybe that's a barcode. Maybe that's some kind of something that comes along. And if you get it, 
you might not believe in God, but you got the thing written on your head, so you get in heaven. You know, it's like these are <laughs> so ridiculous that there are two things that we know are true. One is the only way you get into heaven is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his sacrifice paying for your sin. You have his name written on your head, written right there. If you're not a believer, you're condemned to hell because you still pay for your sin. That's it. There's no mark that's going to get you there. There's no writing that's just going to come along and get you there. It's by faith we're saved and by faith we're condemned because you have faith in the world rather than faith in Christ. So the mark of the beast is simply a thing that identifies worshipers of the beast, which are all non-believers. Now, the group of believers, the 144,000, which we've seen um, in the past verses, but we'll talk about that in just a minute, um, represents the entire church. But let's look first in 14.1 here at the lamb. And this is the true lamb because he's standing on Mount Zion. So we'll look at Mount Zion in a second. But what do you see when you look at a lamb? I mean, if you say, Mother, I want a lamb for Christmas, you be careful how you say that because you might get dinner. But if you're asking for a lamb pet, you would think, well, that's very sweet. You know, the opposite of that goat that you guys want. Those things are not a goat. What is it you want? A donkey. You know, so certain images and sounds are conjured up when you think of this. But a lamb is a cute little, you know, it's, it's certainly not going to go on a rampage through the neighborhood. You know, you don't have to worry about that with a lamb. So we, we have this lamb, gentle, lowly, it's not powerful. And then the lamb in chapter 13 works with the great beast and the mighty dragon, and it makes the earth worship the first beast. But this lamb conquers all of them. And nowhere in the Bible is Satan described as being more powerful than in the book of Revelation. I mean, in the book of Revelation, you just see Satan's power on display, but he's defeated by a lamb. And so it's like, well, you might think he wasn't so powerful after all. Well, not against the lamb. So then what do you see? Do you look at life only with your eyes, the eyes of your body, or do you also see things through the eyes of faith? So the world can be ugly. There's dragons and beasts and false prophets. But what are they against your faith? There are terrible powers of this world against the church. And so what do you see? You know, do you see what I see? Do you hear what I hear? You know, what is it that you're seeing when you see? What do you see when you see the baby in a manger? What did, what did Mary and Joseph see when they saw the baby in the manger? They had the word of angels. They had to even themselves look with eyes of faith. They had to say, it's just a baby. It's just us. How can this be? And you read Mary's Magnificent where she's saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. You know, the, the revelation of God is the only thing that can convince you that things are not as they appear. There are times when we'll see beauty and we'll see magnificent things and we'll be like, yes. But these things are even the more magnificent because they come out of darkness. They come out of times of, of gloom and despair. It's not that we live in a, a constant time of peace and joy, but that uh, we, if you aim at maintaining that peace and joy 
and that's your goal in life is maintaining peace and joy, then everything that happens is just going to be frustrating and aggravating, and it's going to be like, what am I doing wrong? Why am I like this? And so these little pockets of trials that pop up end up being just bumps in the road that keep getting in the way. It's like trying to shoot a basketball, and you're playing with that big guy, and every time you shoot, he just pops it down and laughs in your face. And your only goal is to, only goal is to make that goal pop, pop, pop. But, you know, if you enjoy dribbling the ball, yeah, if you enjoy, you know, going around and just playing the game, and every now and then the ball goes in, there's a celebration. You know, so, you know, it's like the difference between me playing golf and, and, and uh, Stan playing golf. He gets frustrated if he makes a bad shot. I'm used to the bad shots. I rejoice at the good shot. There's two different ways of looking at it. When I got good enough at golf to finally get mad and throw my club one time, I said, I'm being ridiculous. I am not good enough to be angry at a golf shot yet. And so life is like this. When these joyous things come along, when these moments happen, we see them, we rejoice in them, and we say, how wonderful and magnificent. But that is not the common way life goes. So it's better for us to recognize that we live in a fallen and cursed world, that there's something better coming. There's now and not yet. We're, we're now experiencing the kingdom of God. We're now experiencing grace and mercy and peace, but nothing like it's going to be. That's going to be magnificent. So if we're, we're not striving for peace. We're not striving for joy. What we're striving for is faithfulness. We're striving to, to be able to be a, a ministry to other people. We're striving to be able to learn more about God and Christ and one another as we go through this world so that even if the dragon is after you the beast with the seven heads is after you the false prophet is just saying things and the world is going after that and then we see not only the the world attacking us as christians or as the church but just everything that happens to everybody anyway if you see that as just blocked goals blocked goals is frustrating but if we see this as there are times when I see the goodness of God breaking in, and I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. They'll ride your staff, they comfort me. So if you see these things, and this is what Revelation is saying, peel back the curtain. Don't just look at what you see going on, and don't try, or else you've got to fix this world. And you ain't going to do it. Okay, what's going to happen is we preach the gospel, and hopefully we save people from the fire, from the brand. You pluck them out, and the Holy Spirit through us is able to call people to faith. So as Mary and Joseph have to even look at the baby through eyes of faith, and the angels appear to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shines around them, and the angels, I mean, they're one thing, but the shepherds, it's like those, they're lowly people, as the world would see them. The, the last people that should be, angels should be appearing to, they're the last ones that would expect an announcement of the king being born to come to the shepherds. They don't have, they don't even have physical mail to be delivered to them. Nobody's running out from the king to go to the shepherds to be the first ones to say, hey, by the way, shepherds, there's a king being born, you know, so... You're the king in the castle. You're, you're right. You know, there's, there's a new king being born. And what they say in the palace is, make sure to tell the shepherds first. You do it. It's ridiculous. But they ain't, God does that. Tell the shepherds first. David was a shepherd. King David, the, 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 the king that 
they loved. He was a shepherd. Something about shepherds that God connects with and loves. He's a shepherd. <laughs> He's the lamb. Who's a shepherd? We're sheep. So go to the lowly. Go to the ones that are out there at night. Go to the ones that might hear this, and they probably are even going to go when we announce it. They're not going to go, this is unscientific. These are UFOs. I can't believe these things. You know, shepherds are out there. They're like, I love the response. It's very understated in Scripture. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing. I mean, you know, you're out there in the middle of the night. Chris is out there watching Skylink going out there. All of a sudden, angels appear. Go see this thing. And they look around. They go, hey, we ought to go see this thing. You know, it's like that's what we would do. And these two, the lowly shepherds. God sees things differently than the world sees them. And so should we. The lamb is Jesus Christ. He defeated Satan and death, sin, and weakness by submitting to his innocent death on the cross. And that was the point of Christmas, to come as a man, born as a baby in poverty, certainly not in wealthy, in a wealthy estate. But if the angels had not revealed it to the shepherds, nobody would have noticed. But we shift from the persecuted church and the deceived demon-worshipping world, and you get to verse 1, and it's like, I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion was a lamb so that's how you know he's a real lamb because he's on mount zion mount zion was the city of david jerusalem now the angels said that david is behold the king is born in the city of david bethlehem it's like all right which is it and it's both david was born in bethlehem that's why it's called the city of david by his birth this is his own town but he conquered jerusalem and it becomes the place where his palace is and the temple is and this called later the city of David because it becomes his city so and it's called Mount Zion so on Mount Zion is the city of David Jerusalem and in the Old Testament in times prophecy Mount Zion always represents the coming in time kingdom of God so just one so Psalm 2 which is a psalm we've gone to several times um, in the recent chapters of revelation here so psalm 2 is a kingship psalm psalm 2 and just listen to the first six verses why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed against his mashiach against his christ saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then Joel chapter 2, so one of the prophets find just kind of keep going and you can use your table of contents if you want to Isaiah and Jeremiah the big ones and Daniel and you keep going on a little bit and you'll find Joel chapter 2 and I'll read just verse 32 so it's Joel chapter 2 verse 32 and again just to show you we're not making up these interpretations of scripture it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape 
as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So on Mount Zion it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we see that quoted, Acts chapter 2, 21, at Pentecost. Pentecost, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13, Paul says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what they're talking about is this is happening now. Okay, so the prophecy, end times prophecy from the Old Testament is in process of happening now and will finally happen on the last day when all God's people shall finally be saved so that we are living in the end times as the church and as the lion is on Mount Zion, that's an image of the king standing there and with him the 144,000. And that's from Revelation 3.12. As we see that um, it's, they're called out, the redeemed um, from all the world. No one is lost. And so if you look at Revelation 7.4. says and i heard the number of the sealed these they received the seal this mark um, of all the believers 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of israel and what we saw was this represents the entire church of god old testament new testament uh, a complete number beyond imagining and so he hears this number and in verse 9 after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number so he hears 144,000 but he sees is something much greater than that from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb and then we're back in 14, and he looks, and he sees this scene of a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him the 144,000. And now we see it as actually his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And then he hears a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And so this word for voice... In Greek, it's phonane. That's where you get the word phonograph or telephone. Uh, it can mean voice, but it also can mean sound. So when you read uh, as a voice, you, you kind of expect, in, in our way of listening, you hear like one person speaking. But this is a voice, like a, a, a sound that's greater than any one voice. And what we see is actually this huge army choir of the redeemed who are singing so beautifully that it sounds like harps. It's not like you go to Niagara Falls and it's just this deafening loudness. It's this, it's not deafening because of its beauty and you're hearing it and he's hearing it in a vision, but it's so loud, but it's this song, it's this singing. The voice was like the sound of harpists playing their harps and they were singing a new song. And in the Old Testament, new songs are always sung at, at points of victory. So some new thing has happened. Some new victory has happened. And so this is the final victory. This is looking forward to the last day when all sin, all evil, all darkness, all things are indeed finally destroyed. The dragon is finally cast down and destroyed and cast into the lake of fire prepared for Satan and his angels. And so they're singing this new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders and these represent all of creation and all believers old testament new testament and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth and that's the believers the church 
that's the only ones that can learn this song because we're the only ones who actually receive redemption, purchased from um, the penalty due for sin. We have been redeemed. We've been bought from this. So the penalty paid for our sin, and this is important because the penalty was paid to whom? Because it was not paid to Satan. It was paid to God the Father. He is the one to whom we owe allegiance and obedience. It is his wrath over our sin that will be poured out on non-believers. It's not Satan's wrath who will be poured out. That's what people are experiencing now. The wrath of God being delivered to earth through the wrath of Satan for non-believers and even somewhat upon the church. But for all eternity, Satan will be punished in the lake of fire the same as all non-believers, which is why the angels come and they say peace and joy, that there's now reconciliation between man and the world because without Christ there could never have been this Old Testament or New Testament then they describe these 144,000 this is a description of the church um, from this heavenly perspective it's those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins alright but we know in the Bible that marriage uh, is good and acceptable and holy so he's not talking about literal virgins he's talking about symbolism here of of virginity and we see this all over the new testament and uh, all over the old testament where um idolatry is associated with um uh, harlotry is associated with idolatry false worship and these things but if you also go to see what paul wrote in second corinthians 11 second corinthians 11 just the first three verses Paul says, you know, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I have a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that the serpent deceived, that, has, that as the serpent deceived Eve in his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So what we're being called to is a sincere and pure devotion devotion to Christ so that as the churches that were being written to originally are being tempted to um, follow the world for different reasons just give up and just it's not worth it just let it go no don't follow the beast follow the world don't worship demons don't worship these things um, so it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes so you have to ask yourself that question. Do I follow Christ wherever he goes? Wherever he leads, I'll go. Really? It's a high calling. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we are, like the, the, the Carol was saying, you know, we're, we're walking this earth and things are hard and we want to get off the road. He's, he's saying, you know, step off the road a minute uh, you know, and just observe what's going on around you in a good way. But what we can do sometimes is rather than trusting God with our obedience, what we want, because that can become hard, is like, you know, a little disobedience might th make things a little bit easier. So I'm going to step off this road of trusting God with my obedience just for a minute, catch my breath. And then I'm going to go on around this curve and get back on the highway up there. Now I'm back on the road of obedience. But God, the Heavenly Father, being the good Father He is, in some way or another, if you're in Him and you're a child, He's going to go, okay, I love you. I'm still with you. Let's go take a look back back here. You know, I mean, that's going to have to be a thing you have to deal with. And we all do that. And, and the way you deal with that um, depends on what that was. 
And there's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness. And as much as is possible, there's reconciliation, making amends. It depends on what it is. But what we have to be careful is what we desire is to be ones who follow him. And in heaven, when we're finally redeemed, we will not worship anybody else. We'll always follow him, and we will, we will do this. So this is what we're to be attaining to now, is following the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. So first fruits were you would you'd have harvest, you'd take the first fruits and you'd dedicate to God. This belongs to God. So in this sense, the believers being redeemed from all of humanity are offered to God as these first fruits holy to the Lord belonging to God. But what it also in the harvest, what first fruits um, symbolized and recognized was, I give you this because it all belongs to you. This is you're sovereign over the whole thing. If it wasn't for you, I would have nothing. And so I give you this. So God is sovereign over all of humanity, but only the first fruits are given and holy to the Lord. And it does not mean that there's going to be more to come later. Okay, this is simply talking about what the first fruits offering meant. When we give tithes and offerings, I believe what we're really called to do um, as we give in act of worship is you're making a first fruits offering so that you're not saying 10% belongs to God or whatever percentage you do and the rest belongs to me to do with as I please. It's not that. What you're doing with your giving is saying, I would have nothing if it were not for you. Um, I'm giving it to you. This is yours to do with as you please because it's all yours to do with as you please. And without that, sometimes letting our hands go of these things, we can begin rather than worshiping with our stuff. We can begin to worship our stuff, especially if we have our goal to be happiness and pleasure and peace. Then what gives you more happiness? We were watching a, uh, an older TV show, and they were talking about, it's called The Wonder Years. You guys ever seen that? It's based in the 70s. And um, <clears throat> we just watched the episode where the, somebody in the neighborhood got a new car, and the whole whole neighborhood came out. So, we got a new car. And so the family, they needed a new car. And so they go to look at a new car. And you see the salesman there, you know, 70s. They've done, you know, at least, I don't know. So anyway, I always hated to go buy a new car because, you know, you're supposed to negotiate and all these rules. I'm like, just tell me how much it is and I'll tell you whether I want it or not. But it's not that simple because he went and looked at the car. He was practical. And he says, but look over here. And they've got the Mustang red circling around and the kids immediately light up and they jump in the car and they're like this is awesome and the dad's over here going and he looks at his wife who's like please and he says it's not very practical <laughs> it's not about practicality is it it's about making me feel good it's about giving me comfort and joy and it's not saying there's anything wrong with having goods to bring you some happiness and comfort and joy. We are thankful for air conditioning. I see it's broke fans feverishly. But <laughs> Ryan is in control of these things over here. There's so many things that we're appreciative for. But if it's because our goal is happiness, then Brooke's going to go to a church that controls its environmental settings better than ours. Okay? So I know that. I'm sorry for calling you out. But Amy's not here. She's usually her that's doing the fanning. Um, and Ryan, you have a rule about how many fans you have to see before you turn on the air, right? But don't tell anybody. So there is a rule. But if, if our goal is comfort, then we'll never be able to, to achieve true and lasting joy and, and peace and purpose and meaning so that when things happen, you can be somebody that depend, you can be dependent on to, to help. 
you can be somebody that is, is a bit of a rock in a difficult time, an encourager um, in different ways, in different, the way that the Lord has gifted us in these different ways. <clears throat> and finally, it closes, it says, In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So we're to be blameless and holy, and one day we will be. But the thing about lies... Um, it's very interesting. Jordan Peterson, one of his 12 rules for life is um, never lie. And always tell the truth. At least don't lie. So you don't have to, you don't have to say everything, but you, what you say should be true. And if you just give it a week of trying to get into the habit of just always telling the truth, um, at least don't lie, um, it is somewhat transformative because for a lot of people it will cause you to have to change the way you live your life. Because you don't want to have to lie about what you did or didn't do. You want to be able to live truthfully. And if we're following the Lamb, one of the things that is being said here is not just an admonition not to lie, but everything we've been saying about God, everything we've been saying about Christ, everything we've been telling the world about the need for faith, the need for repentance, about there is a creator God, there is, you know, there will be judgment, there is holiness, there is a good God, there is a fall, there is all these things. You'll be vindicated. There's no lie. And that's what we're to be speaking, is this truth. But what the main thing we see here is the comparison between what the world's worship looks like and what the persecution of the church and just problems for believers with the dragon and the beast and the lamb the false prophet and then just hardships and trials and things that happen and you see the world being caused to worship these things then you get a glimpse of what's really going on the lamb standing on mount zion with 144,000 singing these beautiful songs that they're singing and so there's this song i'm gonna close with this because what we're called to do is sing with this army of the Lord all the redeemed of the earth. And as we see that, if you're a believer, you're part of that vision. You're one of those singing this loud voice. Um, saints who've gone before us and who will come after us will be there singing together. And when we sing in worship, here it's just a tiny, pale foretaste of heavenly singing. And so what do you hear when we sing? if we hear with ears of faith, we need to hear the myriads of angels and the saints who've gone before and those yet to come. Seeing crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark, he's listening to see how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. So you hear this music and it drowns out all other music that's not its own. The heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. So what will we sing? And it will be a new song. Let's pray. Father God, help us to sing new songs even now. Help us to sing songs knowing that one day we'll be singing in this heavenly chorus. And even in a certain sense, you tell us that we're doing that now. That the angels sing with us and over us. The saints who have gone before, we join in this heavenly anthem. And we pray that even as we, with our feeble voices, as we sing our next song to you, that we would pray that it would indeed through our souls drown out all other music but its own. And we pray this in your holy name.
Amen.